Section two of the Vegetable Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Esther. The Vegetable Garden by Ida Dandridge Bennett. Chapter two. The Location of the Garden. This is a point which admits of little discussion or advice, as in the majority of cases circumstances decide this arbitrarily, especially is this the case where the only land at command is comprised in the narrow confines of a city backyard, or the somewhat more generous area of a suburban lot. But in the country, where land is abundant, the only restrictive condition is that it should be near the house, so that it may be easily worked and cared for, especially if much of this care must evolve upon the women of the family, as is often the case on the farm. Given here a measure of choice of location, it will be well to select a bit of land well drained and exposed to the sunshine the greater part of the day. The near presence of trees is to be avoided, as these not only furnish more shade than is desirable, but the roots, which extend in all directions over an area equal to the spread of the tops, drain all the moisture and much of the nourishment from the soil, much to the detriment of any crop which may be planted in their immediate vicinity. Low wetland should be avoided unless it can be thoroughly drained, in which case it often makes excellent garden land. I have such a spot on my own land, which for a number of years was too wet to work to advantage, in any but very dry seasons, and in the spring thaws and after every hard summer rain was under water for a foot or more. Finally, after losing a dozen fine Brahma fowls, which had been shut up in a temporary coop to break them of setting, by a sudden summer rain which flooded all of that part of the premises, it was drained by the very simple and inexpensive expedient of digging a deep hole six feet deep and five feet in diameter and filling this up with all sorts of rubbish from the place, old tins, broken crockery, and the like. This proved perfectly successful, and no trouble has been experienced since, the ground being in shape to work but a few days later than the rest of the garden, and not delaying cultivation to any extent at any time during the remainder of the summer. It has been found an excellent place for the growing of cabbage and cauliflowers, which have now been grown there several years in succession without any sign of clubfoot or much of any damage from the cabbage worm. Of course this bit of land is underlaid with gravel. With a clay subsoil it might be necessary to employ more scientific drainage and the laying of porous tile be found necessary. Clay land does not make an ideal garden soil. A good warm loam, well overlaid with humus, decayed vegetable matter, is the best soil in which to grow garden stuff, but a stiff clay soil may be made to produce good results by heavy manuring and underdraining, but will not warrant the expense if other and better soil is available. The point to be considered in selecting garden soil is to choose that which will grow the greatest variety of vegetables with the least expenditure of labor and fertilizers. There are very few vegetables, but what may be grown to a point of perfection satisfactory for the home garden, though they might not produce in quantities to make them remunerative for a market garden, where much more is expected of the soil than in private places. Certain soils, like well-drained marshlands, are ideal for certain vegetables, such as celery, cabbage, and the like, but less valuable for general use. 
on the small village lot one must perforce take what one has and it is doubtful if there is any bit of land but what may be made under careful management to produce a fair amount of vegetation the fertility of a small area of land is so easily increased that no plot of land need be considered hopeless on that score the mechanical condition is more apt to cause trouble when a piece of land has been used for a dumping heap for years probably beginning with the erection of the house when all the excavated subsoil was dumped upon the ground and leveled off instead of being carted away as it should have been and succeeding years have left their accumulation of ashes rubbish and old cans to further injure the soil there does not seem to be much to do especially if the first deposit consists as it probably does of gravel and hard pan but to first remove all rubbish and then to dig up the surface dirt down to the original soil and have the refuse carted away as there is always a demand for dirt for grading in a place of any size the expense of digging up the dirt will usually be all that is entailed as someone can always be found to haul it away for it there is one condition to be considered however in this method of restoring the soil and that is the grade if this is high enough to allow of the removal of any considerable amount of earth well and good but if not fresh earth must be brought in to take its place however the ploughing and fertilizing of the soil will raise the grade considerably and land that at first may appear too low will in the course of two or three years cultivation have quite recovered its usual grade the proneness of land to rise has well been demonstrated on my own place where the house stands on a knoll the ground sloping away in all directions and should for this reason afford a perfectly dry house and cellar the contrary however is true owing to the fact that several years ago the sod was broken around the foundations of the house for the planting of vines and shrubbery as the soil about foundations is never very suitable for the growing of plants fresh earth was added from the compost heap and garden much of the poor soil being first removed subsequent top dressings of soil and fertilizers has resulted in so marked a rise in the grade of the ground as to permit water to run in at the cellar windows during spring thaws and summer storms as a result we find it will be necessary to cut the sod in narrow strips and roll it back for a distance of twenty feet or more lay aside the surface soil and remove about six inches of the subsoil and replace the surface soil and the sod and roll it thoroughly with the lawn roller this is the one serious objection to base plantings about the house or outbuildings its tendency to raise the grade of the land it has been said that the near presence of trees is to be avoided in the garden but the comfort and convenience of working it will be greatly enhanced by the presence of a shed or other building on the north side where one can store the necessary tools do much of the indoor work connected with the gardening cleaning vegetables and the like or take shelter in a sudden shower such a building will afford a suitable location for the construction of hotbeds and cold frames as well as affording temporary quarters for vegetables which may need to be gathered in advance of a sudden cold snap it will also be found invaluable for drying and ripening off such vegetables as are to be stored in the cellar for winter use a scaffolding of lathe erected just out of the way of one's head will be found invaluable for drying onions and will double the capacity of the shed another feature of moment in the selection of a garden site is the nearness and availability of the water supply 
Where one has city water, the problem is simple. The water may be carried to the garden, but where this does not exist, the garden must be carried to the well or a home system of water established. This may be accomplished satisfactorily by the erection of a windmill operated through a three-way pump, which will convey water to any point in the ground. Even the mill may be dispensed with and water carried to a standpipe, supplied with a hose and nozzle, whence it may be distributed about the garden as needed. It is necessary, however, in installing a force pump of any make, to know just what you are getting, and not find oneself encumbered with a pump which it is a punishment to work, or one with insufficient force to throw a reasonable stream of water. The presence of a shed and a water supply adjacent will be found of the greatest convenience to the housewife, who can there prepare the vegetables for the table, doing away with much dirt about the kitchen, and the subsequent disposal of the tops, husks, and other refuse. There is one more point to notice in connection with the kitchen garden, and that is that it should be as widely separated from the henery as possible. The presence of a high fence of chicken netting as a dividing line is not sufficient, though it is a distinct gain on chickens running at large. But, for perfect immunity from the encroachments of Mistress Biddy, it is best to begin with the youngsters, and, by keeping temptation out of their way, nip in the bud any embryo inclination to revel in one's softest garden beds. Where the hen-park adjoins the garden, the little chicks, which can easily pass through the meshes of the netting, form the habit of working there, and the first move they make in the morning will be through the fence into the garden. I do not think that at this stage they do any harm. Sometimes I have thought their presence a benefit, so many are the bugs and worms they destroy, and they aid materially in the cultivation of the larger vegetables, cauliflower, cabbage, tomatoes, and the like, but are destructive indeed to the tender leaves of the lettuce, and as the garden advances and tomatoes and melons ripen, they can be trusted to peck everything as it ripens. Moreover, having formed the garden habit, it is nearly impossible to break them of it, and fences that were considered chicken-tight apparently form no barrier to them. I have repeatedly seen Plymouth Rocks and American Reds climb up a wire netting by hooking their claws into the meshes, balance a moment on the top wire, and fly triumphantly down into the forbidden land. Chickens, which have never been allowed in the garden, seldom make serious trouble in confinement. The past summer I have been greatly puzzled to learn how certain half-grown American Reds gained access to the garden past a six-foot board fence and a five-foot wire netting, but the mystery was solved when I found that they were climbing from branch to branch of a mulberry tree on the park side of the fence, until they had reached a sufficiently high altitude when they flew down on or over the fence. A flock of buff rocks, which came of stock, which had always been confined, had evinced not the slightest inclination to stray, but stay contentedly in their park, coming up en masse each night to be fed. Yet I feel not a shadow of doubt that had their parents been brought up on my own premises, their offspring would have proven as predatory as the descendants of my own hens. This may seem a far call from the subject, but it is a point which is likely to be called to the attention of the gardener in a very forcible manner, any fine summer day, when he finds, as I did in the past summer, his bed of prize lettuce or other product of his tender care practically exterminated by a few moments' visit of a flock of chickens. However, 
I can assure him he will not feel half as bad about it as he would had they been his neighbor's chickens. End of section two.